what we find is, yeah, people who follow um, the National Party and the ACT Party accounts were more likely to follow climate change denial accounts and anti-vaccination accounts. And that's something that was interesting because people often think of anti-vaxxers, at least, you know, I think that landscape has changed a bit in the last few years, but people often think of anti-vaxxers as more left-wing sort of hippies. Um, but it actually tends to be people more politically on the right. Kia ora and welcome to a Coalesce Produce project, PhD Unpacked. A podcast where we make academic research more accessible by interviewing the authors. I'm Kimberly, and I'll be the narrator. Today we're joined by the wonderful Dr. John Kerr, PhD alumnus of Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington. John currently works for University of Otago as a senior research fellow in the Public Health Communication Centre. He's working to set up a new centre focused on the public perceptions of science and socially relevant scientific issues, as well as communicating scientific evidence to non-experts. Previously, John was a research associate at Cambridge University in the UK, working in a similar sphere, in addition to contributing to projects looking at COVID-19-related risk perception, behaviours and attitudes. You'll hear my voice again later in the episode, just to give some context to John's research, but for now, I'll leave you with James, our host, chatting to John about why he chose to do this PhD. Before we get into your research, can you tell us briefly how and why you ended up writing this PhD specifically? Yeah, so I I was interested in science and science communication. Uh, My undergrad degree was in science, and I went on to do a master's in science communication. And then I kind of worked as a practitioner, a professional in that space. So I worked at a place called the Science Media Centre as a communications or media advisor. And it was in my work there that I was working with scientists and journalists, helping to improve the the quality and the quantity of science news coverage. But while I was working there, you know, these same issues kept coming up. Things like climate change denial or anti-vaccination beliefs were, were being reported in the media. And I really wanted to understand more about how those kind of beliefs that, that go against sort of mainstream science, how they come about, you know, what, what is actually going on behind those. And um, the opportunity came up to, to do a PhD with Mark Wilson up at Victoria University, Wellington, um, looking at exactly these kind of issues. He was really interested in that as well. And so after talking with him, um, we, I put in a proposal and, and that's, you know, now it's all history, I guess. That's how it happened. Was it something that you had always thought about going that far into academia or was it just sort of at a certain point you just woke up and think actually I'm the person that I should go back and and spend the time on this or when you finish you know your undergrad did you always think oh maybe but maybe one day I'll come back to the PhD I mean so uh, when I finished my undergrad I I actually worked in a lab for for half a year as a research assistant in a a proper science lab with a white coat um, working on brain tissue from rats and it really put me off science. Uh, I thought, I don't want to be a scientist. Um, this, this is actually quite boring. So, and, and that's what led me more into the science communication field of thinking, well, actually, you know, I really like talking about science. I'm really excited about telling people about science. And, and that's what would lead me down that career path. And then I got to a point where I was working at the Science Media Center. I'd been there for five years and I really loved the job, but there wasn't any other similar roles that I could move into. Um, I couldn't, you know, sort of gone to promoted as far as I could in the role I was, and there weren't any other openings for that. 
uh, that kind of work. And so it had me looking at, you know, what else could I do? And and I realized that, you know, I, I, I did have a deeper interest in this to the point that I wanted to be involved in, in finding out more myself rather than just reading what other people were doing. And um, so that was part of the reason that I went back to academia was really that um, I couldn't move forward in what I was doing. And I was just so interested in finding out more about it that um, I took a significant pay cut to, to go back into uni and, um, and do a PhD. Awesome. Well, so before we dive into the bulk of your thesis and the research, I'd love to talk about the methodology a little bit. Um, as we'll get into soon, your PhD is built up of a number of different studies, sort of all under this kind of banner research drive of why, why do we argue about science? What is the root cause of the rejection of science? But can you talk a little bit about methodology employed in the research? A lot of the the PhD research we look at is often qualitative and I'd say not to say yours is not qualitative but yours is definitely slightly divergent from a lot of the PhDs we've touched on on PhD Unpacked I guess in this sort of quest to figure out why do people think the way they do there's there's both a need for great data collection of these people but why is not really a yes no question it's not binary you need to know more than just simply tick a box so could you tell us a little bit more about the the varied methodology that sort of makes up all the different parts of your PhD? Yeah, so so you're right. There's this kind of division between qualitative research, which is is much more focused on sort of talking to people, interviewing people, finding out about their lives, versus quantitative research, which is trying to turn everything into numbers. Uh, and and for better or worse, I tend to be a more of a quantitative person. So a lot of my research um, that's in my thesis is survey based. So rather than me going out and interviewing individual people and collecting sort of information and insights that way, it was much more about trying to turn people's beliefs into numbers and then looking for correlations, patterns, which sounds quite dry, but it gives you this really good like bird's eye view of what's happening. You know, you can see patterns where if you just talk to a few people, you might not, but you get 10,000 people and you start being able to find these connections between sets of beliefs. Um, so a, a big chunk of my thesis research was based on surveys, but also survey experiments. And this is where you split people into two groups and maybe show one group one message and one group the other message, and then look for differences in, in how they respond to questions afterwards. And so there was also an experimental component there. Um, and then also you know, the problem with surveys is that people say something in a survey it might not actually be what they believe. It's clear, even just looking at sort of the contents tab of your PhD, you know, some of your researchers are broad New Zealand research, some as university students, some as Twitter. There's one of your your surveys that was specifically on on the US. You know, you haven't just even if it's quantitative, there's enough variance that as I mean, as a reader, you look at it and go, Oh, well, this is gonna be different from that. I can relate to that I'm part of that sample group in theory, or I'm not part of that sample group. But mm -hmm. it's a nice segue into wanting to ask you, when you when about beginning this PhD, were you thinking of the the idea of the rejection of science and exploring it as a as a global concept, or did you go in specifically with sort of the New Zealand landscape in mind? And did that change in the years of of the process? Was this sort of a wider why do people argue about science holistically in this this globe where everyone is different based on their communities, or, or do you go I'm doing this research in New Zealand? mostly from a New Zealand perspective, understanding that that research will probably reflect on the world to some extent. 
Yeah, the, the easy answer to that is both. <laughs> um, so definitely there was a lack of this kind of research in New Zealand. There'd, there'd been over the last decade like a real build-up of, of research interest in this internationally, people putting forward theories and ideas um, that were really interesting to me. And I thought I can, through my research, contribute to, to building a better picture of what's going on. So it was thinking you know, internationally. And like you said, I did collect data in the US as well to make sure I was sort of um, that New Zealand wasn't some weird outlier in the research I was doing. But but also, there really wasn't a lot of information about these kinds of beliefs in New Zealand. Um, you know, there are different surveys done over the last 20 years that pick up bits of it, but nothing that had tried to look at it across the board in the way I did. And it was, it was very fortunate, just as I was starting, the Prime Minister's Chief Science Advisor, Peter Gluckman, was interviewed, um, I think, for the Herald. And someone was asking him about these ideas. They're like, you know, we're seeing anti-vaccination beliefs and climate denial, you know, you know, quite widespread in discussions overseas. Is that happening in New Zealand? And he said, you know what, we just don't know. And that was great for me because, you know, here was the Prime Minister's chief science advisor saying, like, there's this open research question here. Um, you know, we don't have enough data in New Zealand to, to really talk about these kind of issues or how widespread these beliefs are. So it was very validating for me for him to say that. And I put, I put that quote in the introduction of my thesis. If only someone was doing the research now and could tell us tell us the answers. Oh, that is a gratuitous timing. Um, so let's move into this idea of defining the rejection of science, which is quite early on in, in your thesis. And you frame, or at least you make an attempt to provide a specific definition so we're working within a, a specific framework and use the, the following definition, uh, the dismissal of well-established scientific results for reasons that are not scientifically grounded. I guess it's it's more nuanced than it seems and uh, that I would have approached this PhD and as a reader thought, well it's, well, it's obvious what rejection of science is, but you, you make a really interesting point early on that this concept of the rejection of science is sort of an individual perspective and it's it's different from say the organized science denial and it also doesn't necessarily mean that someone is anti-science all the time they might just disagree with one subject that there's clear scientific evidence for and that person disagrees with it could, could you speak about i guess defining what rejection of science means and how it is slightly more complicated than what might seem yeah. like a really simple thing to define? I, I spent months grappling with this question and it can lead you down all sorts of philosophical rabbit holes. You know, I was trying to figure out what is science, you know, what is truth? And it just got to this point where I realized like I can I can go around in circles with a lot of this kind of more philosophical questions about what is it I'm really trying to say. Um, so the definition given there, which, which actually came from other researchers, is a very kind of practical one in a sense, but there's still these questions about, well, what do you mean by science? And and so it's the easiest way to define it is by the examples that everyone can, can be kind of connect with, that they're familiar with. So people who say that climate change isn't happening or that, you know, vaccines will give you autism. Uh, they, these are kind of examples of where people are holding beliefs that go against the mainstream scientific consensus. But it's not necessarily, you know, them themselves, they, they don't necessarily see themselves as rejecting science. They might be like, oh, I've got the science. You know, I've got these crazy, you know, um, crackpot scientists who are backing me up. So I'm the, I'm the one with science on my side. So it's not necessarily that they're saying science is wrong. It's just that what mainstream science is saying is wrong. And the real science that I've got here on my internet research is that's the real science. Um, so it's a, it's a tricky one to try and walk that path of saying, well, you know, is someone saying, I don't believe in science? 
Or is it just, I don't believe in your science? Mm. And sometimes it could be one or the other. There are people who think that, you know, scientists don't really have the ability to understand what's going on. And there are other ways of knowing that are, that are you know, more insightful. You know, people believe in more kind of spiritual or holistic worldviews, right? So if we look at all of this within the framework of, of this idea of the rejection of science, let's start to unpack some of the different reasons why people do hold that rejection of science. And, and the, the first sort of area that you, you speak about in your research is sort of under the, I guess, the banner of ignorance. Could you touch on the idea of the information deficit model and also the, this idea of the lack of awareness of, of consensus? Because that sort of idea of ignorance is, of consensus is, is, a big, is a big point within your research, right? Yeah. So, so the, the, the thing that most people go to when they find someone disagreeing with them, especially scientists, like let's say climate change is an example, is they think, oh, this person doesn't understand the science and I just need to explain it to them. And then they'll go, oh, you're right, climate change is real. My apologies. And and everything is sorted and smoothed over. And that's not what happens. So, you know, we're particularly scientists always want to explain using facts. And they think that that's the problem, is a deficit of knowledge. And that's where the idea of the deficit model comes from, which is sort of frowned upon now. You know, it's like that's not a great way to think about it because there are some really smart people, you know, who who, who know, all the, know all the information but still disagree with it. And so there's something else driving those sets of beliefs. That's not to say information isn't important. You still need to provide people with clear and accessible um, scientific results. But it's not it, that on its own is not enough to really shift people's beliefs or change their minds on, on some of these really particular issues. If it's about something that you've never heard of, so nanot- nanotechnology is a good example. You talk to someone about nanotechnology, they probably don't have any strong beliefs. You give them some information and they might change their opinion um, because it's not really important to them. But once you start talking about these more socially relevant things like climate change or vaccines, suddenly all these other factors come into play. Um, but talking about providing information, one of the one of the first things that comes up in my thesis is the idea that um, people might not be aware necessarily of the science, but they might also have a a distorted view of what scientists actually think as a group. And climate change again is an example I keep coming back to because there's been concerted efforts to cast doubt on the consensus around climate change. So there'd been some work done already, and and I contributed to this in my thesis to to do some more extra studies looking at this, that what you think scientists think influences your own beliefs, and in particular, the level of agreement amongst scientists. So climate change is a case where, you know, at the time of my thesis, it was 97% was the number that was sort of used, that 97% of climate scientists agree that climate change is real and caused by humans. And that was sort of like a, a fact that got handed out to people as a way to try and convince them of the reality of climate change. Um, and so my research looked at, well, how does, how does that consensus information really factor into people's beliefs? Does it, do they update their view of the consensus? And then does that lead on to them changing their idea about the reality of climate change, say? Um, and I also looked at GM food to sort of you know, have a comparison. And when we first spoke, uh, you you told me about how consensus, this, this uh, to use the technical term uh, that you shared, uh, academic shit fight, uh, <laughs> where consensus <laughs> began, uh, you moved away from that. You were talking about how lots of people were working in that space, and and you sort of pivoted to thinking, well, 
outside of consensus, what else is there that we need to be thinking about in terms of people's attitudes in terms to rejection yeah. of science? I mean, so I should, I should, yeah. So the, one of the reasons that I looked at consensus in the first place is there was this argument happening between academic researchers in the field, um, writing quite mean letters to each other in academic journals. And I saw this as an opportunity where like, obviously there's, there's some debate here. And that means that you can inform that with more research, right? Like you can contribute to this ongoing discussion. And so my first initial couple of studies that looked at the effect of consensus information um, were contributing to that, but I also managed to get myself caught up in the middle of this um, where the two studies that I published were, were sort of disagreed on a couple of points. And um, I think that caused some frustration for other researchers in the field. But, but I did, I, and still today, actually, I'm involved in, in some of that kind of research looking at consensus messaging. Um, but at the time, I thought, the, this is interesting, but it's, it's something that I could keep digging deeper and deeper into. And I'm aware that there's so many other factors that influence people's beliefs around scientific issues. And I wanted to explore that kind of wider view of all the factors that are, that are tied into what we think about vaccines or genetically modified food and things like that. And so two of two of the big things that you pivoted towards that take up a, a bulk of your research is these two different concepts, one being right-wing authoritarianism and another being social dominance order or RWA and STO. Could you break these two ideas down? I know they are two different things and, and how they relate to unpacking the rejection of, of science. Yeah. Yeah, so RWA and SDO, uh, they, they are, they're related. They're like kind of twins almost. And they're, they're two different sets of beliefs, but they often relate. Like people who adopt one set often share, they hold similar beliefs around the other. Um, so right-wing authoritarianism is a set of really deep-seated beliefs and attitudes about how the world works or how the world should work. And it's... Um, the technical definition is it's three covariant clusters of uh, submission to authority, aggression on the behalf of authority, and tradi traditionalism, which isn't very helpful. But it's this idea that people um, will, will do what, they, what their leaders ask of them, that they hold very strong views about defending their group or their leaders, so this idea of aggression, and also traditionalism or conservatism in the sense of they don't want things to change. Um, and these three things seem to all seem to be wrapped up together. And about 50 years ago or so, a researcher kind of gave it the label of right-wing authoritarianism, which is not quite fair because it's not right-wing in the, in the political sense. He's actually using the words in a slightly different sense, and he's had to apologize for it ever since this particular researcher, because everyone thinks he's talking about political conservatives. Um, and to be sure, political conservatives often do hold those views, but it's not purely about the politics. It was something deeper about um, people's belief in, in sort of authority and tradition, which is where the original right-wing, left-wing distinction came from. So that's one set, and the other is social dominance orientation. Um, and that is much easier to explain. Your social, social dom dominance orientation is how okay you are with inequality. So some people you might know, they're like, hey, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. Some people are going to be on the top, some people on the bottom. That's just how it is. Those people would be high in SDO. Um, and then you have low, low SDO people who really strongly believe in equality, and they, they really would, would argue that everything, everyone should be equal, and we should fight for equality. 
Um, and you can see how that's tied to, to ideas like racism or outgroup bias and things like that. And so these two fundamental sets of beliefs are, uh, have been really well studied in psychology and they've been applied to lots of things like um, racism, sexism, uh, but also beliefs about the environment and climate change. And climate change in particular is where I sort of kicked off in my thesis that um, some people, including my colleague at Victoria, Samantha Stanley, uh, had looked at RWA and SDO, these two sets of beliefs, and, and tried to show how they relate to people's climate change beliefs. And perhaps, you know, unsurprisingly, if you think about the kinds of people who might be climate change deniers, they tend to adopt uh, right-wing authoritarian and socially dominant beliefs. So they, they endorse the idea that there's a hierarchy in society and they also are quite um, authoritarian and, and traditional, like they, they don't want things to change. They're not very progressive in their mindset. And so those, those connections, those relationships have been established. But my question in, in the later studies in my thesis was like, how do they relate to other scientific issues? Is it just a climate change thing? Or do we see similar patterns with, say, vaccines or, or the fluoridation of water for um, you know, dental protection? Or you know, a very um, American one is, is belief in the theory of evolution and that have been studied elsewhere, but not in the context of RWA and SDO, which I, my supervisor likes to call the other, as close to a, a grand theory of social psychology as you can get that these two deep-seated beliefs about authority and social dominance are, are driving a lot of our surface beliefs about the everyday things we talk about. Especially because when you think of, of climate change specifically, so often when it's spoken about is, is trying to frame, if, if climate change continues at the rate that it does, it is not going to affect everyone on the globe in the same way. There are certain parts of the world, certain communities that will be affected more significantly and more immediately than other groups. I think that that concept in particular of SDO, how people feel about uh, equality or inequality globally was such an eye-opening thought of, of course, uh, if certain people have a framework that could correlate to so much about uh, how if someone, if someone presents an idea that is uh, sets off all these red flags. It just the, and the barriers go up. It isn't necessarily. It doesn't have to come from a, a rejection of of evidence or what someone presents uh, statistically. Or you know, put a picture, put a bit of picture in front of someone and say, "Look at the ice caps. They're obviously melting." If it just works against something much more holistic and psychological and deeply embedded in some ways, that that to me makes a lot more sense of why. If someone just will not, I don't want to say they won't understand, they just won't have their opinion changed, that it comes from something much more deep-rooted than a specific one-to-one, here is a piece of evidence, here is a piece of information. Oh, you're rejecting that for whatever reason. The, the SDO thing, having never come across it before, was this massive eye-opener of like, well, of, of, of course, that just makes so much sense that that would be a key uh, key influence on on people when they consider the rejection of science and as you said climate change is as that kind of that nub which within all science at the moment is kind of the easy entrance point and then fascinating for you to apply that to to other lenses and go well uh, does this does this drop down into to other things because people are talking about climate change more than they are the fluoridation of water generally speaking i'm sure if you took all the data from all the newspapers and all the online media polls but hey fluoridation of water within new zealand does come up all the time 
At this point in the interview, the discussion shifted towards the range of research studies that John conducted in order to form an overall picture of why people argue about science. In one study, John surveyed 547 students enrolled in an introductory psychology course at Tehiringa Waka, Victoria University. In the survey, students were asked a range of questions designed to capture where they sat on both the RWA, right-wing authoritarianism, and SDO, social dominance order spectrums. As an example for RWA, students were asked to respond to the following statement. Obedience and respect for authority are the most important virtues children should have. While an example for SDO was responding to this statement. We shouldn't try to guarantee that every group has the same quality of life. The students' responses were mapped across a scale of strongly disagree to strongly agree and compared to the answers relating to a range of questions designed to capture how each individual felt about scientific issues, including things like climate change and vaccinations. Another study John conducted was similar, but instead of New Zealand University students, it gathered responses from 710 participants in the United States via an online survey. The data captured these participants' levels of RWA and SDO, but also their stances on political ideology, religiosity, free market ideology, and conspiracy mentality, as well as their thoughts on scientific issues. These two research studies, alongside a larger-scale online survey via staff, with a sample size of 9,126 New Zealanders, provided John with considerable data to assess the relationship between ideological attitudes and the rejection of science. We jump back into the interview with John recapping the findings of these studies. I looked at how RWA and STO relate to climate change, which was, has already been studied, and I sort of validated those results, but also um, vaccination belief, so the idea that vaccines are safe and effective, that community water fluoridation is effective at improving dental health, that um, GM foods are as safe to eat as non-GM or organic foods, and that um, the theory of evolution, so essentially that, that existing species now evolved from earlier species. And these are all uh, supported by a scientific consensus. And I didn't get into huge amounts of detail there in, in my thesis because I didn't want to spend the whole time talking about these different topics. But I just pointed out that scientists agree about each of these points. Um, and so when I looked at, you know, are people who are more endorsing of authoritarian and socially dominant beliefs, are they more likely to buy into um, the rejection of these, these scientific claims? And so he's doing this through survey research with a number of different groups. Um, the answer was yes. And it was quite nice as a student to be able to say something quite conclusive like that and say, look, no one's looked at this before. I wanted to see if RWA and STO were related to these other scientific beliefs. And in a student sample in New Zealand, and then also a really big public sample of New Zealanders recruited through a newspaper, and then also a sample recruited online in America, I can say yes, <laughs> that these things are definitely related. Um, and so then the next step in those studies was to say, well, why? Why are they related? And there's a bunch of different reasons, things that are connected to RWO and SDO that could explain why people reject science, why they hold beliefs that go against the mainstream consensus on these particular issues. 
Um, and so there's another list there. So there's, there's political beliefs. So like whether you consider yourself a liberal or a conservative or right wing or left wing. But also tied to that, a different set of beliefs of just, just about economic, <coughs> excuse me, economics. So like the free market, you know, the idea that the government shouldn't be interfering in people's lives and that the free market should really sort things out. Um, but there's also the, this kind of idea of belief in conspiracies, which again is shown to be related to RW and STO, and it's known to be tied to beliefs about, say, vaccines is, is an obvious one. So there's conspiracies. There's also actually like, you know, how much do you know about science, right? Um, so what we call science literacy. So I asked people a bunch of questions in these surveys, just about basic scientific questions, and you can give them a score that basically says, you know, you seem to know a lot about science or you don't seem to know a lot about science. And I wanted to see, was that a factor in, in what was going on here? And then the last one I looked at, and I've left it to last because it's the most interesting and it turns out to be the most relevant, was how much people trust scientists as a group. Um, you know, do you think scientists tell the truth? Do you think that they have your best interests at heart, essentially? And um, what I did was looked at the relationship between all of these things and RWO and SDO, and then also the relationship between those and these scientific beliefs. And then using a, a, a very complicated series of statistical equations and, and structural equation modeling and all these things that, that aren't worth explaining. Um, suffice to say, it took a long time to figure out how to do it and even longer to analyze it. Um, but it created these pretty plots with arrows and boxes. Um, I was able to sort of draw these different paths that showed how RWA and SDO were related to, say, climate change versus GM foods. And one of the takeaways is that there are different reasons, different pathways that those deep beliefs end up influencing our views on these scientific issues. So for climate change, politics was a really big factor, but it wasn't for something like, say, GM food. Um, you know, conspiracy thinking, so it's, or a conspiracy mentality, so that's being more likely to, to believe in conspiracy theories. That was a factor definitely for um, vaccines, but it didn't really matter for evolution. And the obvious one, actually, which I forgot, was religion. I also asked people, you know, how religious do you see yourself? And, of course, that was the biggest factor for evolution, which conflicts with, you know, classical interpretations of the Bible. So there were all these different pathways, but they could all be traced back to RWA and SDO. That they, they, and there's a lot of previous research that had connected these, these different ideas together, but not in the context of rejection of science. Um, but the one thing that stood out um, instantly and across, you know, the two studies where I included it was trust in science. And that's the idea that people who, in, who endorse an authoritarian and, and a hierarchical or socially dominant worldview trust scientists less. And people who trust scientists less are less likely to believe that climate change is happening. They're less likely to think that vaccines are safe. They're less likely to think that GM food is safe. They're less likely to think that fluoride is safe. And they're less likely to think that evolution explains species today. And so across the board, trust in scientists seem to be the key link between those deeper beliefs and our views about scientists. And in the thesis, I then go on to speculate about why people high in RWA and SDO trust scientists less. Um, but I wasn't able to answer those questions because I'd run out of time at that point in, in my life. Um, but it really set up the, the idea that we can try and explain the links between these really fundamental beliefs that on the face of it just have nothing to do with science. Like whether you think um, society should be structured in a hierarchy has nothing to do with the greenhouse effect or that you know carbon dioxide traps heat in the atmosphere, right? 
but somehow these two very different kinds of beliefs become connected. And that was the, that later part of my thesis was trying to explain those links. Eagle-eyed listeners will notice that the snippet we used at the start of the episode... What we find is people who follow the National Party and the ACT Party accounts were more likely to follow climate change denial accounts and anti-vaccination accounts. Isn't actually in this version. Why, you may ask? Because the full hour-long interview is exclusively available on Patreon. By signing up, you'll get 25% more goodness in our episode instead of the 45 minutes you hear here, all for the price of $5 a month. Our most affordable package for you. I'll drop you back into the interview, but I hope to see you there. As we move into this, I guess the takeaways of your, your research, it moves into questioning how can we improve the trust in scientists and science communication generally, which is very much you know where your career has gone. I imagine yeah. what you're, you're considering now. A couple of things that you mention are considering that, that scientists are perhaps not the best messengers of the evidence and, and working within leaders and communities is a really good idea. I, I would say, again, we're, we've, we've done well to steer away from uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. This is sort of where I imagine the, the floodgates will, will open. But we've seen that within the last few years, that working with leaders is, and communities is really important, right? And that perhaps the people who are most uh, comfortable with the scientists, the scientists, the people who observe the evidence are not necessarily the best people to communicate that to the masses. Yeah, I mean, particularly when you're when you're trying to reach people who who are, are maybe more opposed to to the ideas, or they hold beliefs that would fall into that rejection of science category. So, so often, you know, scientists might be preaching to the choir, and everyone's like, "Yeah, I'm on board with this." And as you say, with COVID and vaccines, this became a real challenge. Like, how do we talk to people who who perhaps aren't that trusting of scientists. Well, for goodness sake, don't send a scientist down there. Like, I, So there is this approach to identify leaders in the community, talk to them one-to-one, and then they become messengers because they are trusted by those communities. And there's some really good examples here in New Zealand, but also overseas, of where people work really hard to, to overcome any kind of um, lack of trust in the scientists specifically by working through these trusted intermediaries so people who held respect as community leaders or religious leaders. Um, and that was really effective. And that, that's a very specific study, uh, specific case study where you actually were, you know, there, were, there was a real public health need to try and reach those particular groups. And another couple of examples that you speak to in regards to the takeaways and how can we improve this, this trust in scientists. You, you talk about greater public access to research and data and perhaps a more two-way uh style of communication so it's not just the stripped down here's what the scientists say it comes down to the non-scientist common folk there needs to be more scientists listening to the public and you also talk about trying to engage with young people with the education of science earlier on are any of these do you think particularly important or are they all just ideas that might help contribute and we obviously it's it's hard to quantify what they would look like yeah i mean i don't i i think they would help um, it's hard to point to specific like real world evidence because these things are being done to varying degrees, but they're not randomized controlled trials, right? So, so you can't sort of follow people over several years and say, aha, the ones who got you know science education randomly this way were different to the ones who got it that way. Um, so it's all sort of what we'd say is like correlational or observational evidence. But it's there that says, you know, like getting uh, science education in, in the high schools 
does lead you to being, a, you know, probably a bit more quote unquote pro-science, um, but also more aware of like how scientific issues fit into everyday life. Um, the two-way thing, um, so so better dialogue between um, the public and scientists. I'm doing air quotes here because um, it's it's not really that these two groups exist. Scientists are people. They live in society. Um, but, but the idea of when you think about them as these kind of broad groups, scientists do often or, or did, I say historically, you know, just try and give information to the public and expect them to change their behavior or their beliefs. And really, they did that without understanding maybe what are some of the deeper issues that the public has with research. So GM food was a good one where they're like, oh, we can just like muck around with genes and, and make better fruits. And they there wasn't a lot of listening to how the public thought about that and, and what concerns they might have had. Um, and now, especially in places like Europe, there is a lot more of this dialogue where before research even starts, there is sort of discussion. Actually, there's a really good study, a case study of this in New Zealand, where they were looking at um, using genetically modified organisms for pest control. So um, potentially, you know, modifying possums to be sterile and then they'd pass that gene on um, so, so quasi-sterile, less, less prolifically breeding, essentially. And, um, you know, before you even do any of that research, they went out and talked to people, they did surveys and, and, and tried to figure out, like, how acceptable is this? What are the issues that people would see with this? Um, so it wasn't that they necessarily were planning to do it, but they thought before anyone even thinks about this kind of research, where is public opinion? And so they, yeah, interviewed people and, and, and did surveys and so on. And I guess more broadly, I want to ask you, as you, and I want to break this into two categories of a sort of, once you'd finished your research in, in and around 2020 before the COVID-19 pandemic began and sort of afterwards, because I think those are potentially two different timeframes to ask you this question. Pre-COVID-19, I'm placing you in this 2020, let's say January or February, how did your personal opinions on people who reject science change after the scope of, of the research? And within that, I guess the question to ask is more broadly, sort of what do people who place themselves as science believers, again, air quotes as well, need to understand about science rejectors? I imagine looking at all this data and 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 processing it must have changed, not not necessarily changed your opinions, but given you a broader perspective of, of what the general public, people who are science believers, don't have uh, have access to simply because they haven't poured over the data for three four years like you did yeah i guess the, a key thing is that i had a greater empathy for for people who who hold those beliefs um so so you know who don't agree with the mainstream science sort of view on things i don't i wouldn't agree with them but i think i understood their motivations better and that kind of softened my position about it i, I used to be probably quite militant as a sort of skeptic kind of mindset of like you know I was very rational and these people were stupid, right? Um, I probably was, that's making me sound meaner, but I, I definitely didn't have a positive view of those kind of people. And it made me sort of understand better where they were coming from and, and their motivations. And in some ways, you know, I can agree with some of the reasons why, you know, um, people get upset about the role of the state in their lives. Probably they're worried about it more than I am, but... No one wants to live in a totalitarian state which controls everything. And it's just maybe I'm a little bit further along the spectrum than they are. But I kind of agree and say, yeah, I, I worry about like, you know, living in a totalitarian state. I don't think we do now. 
But I share that belief. You just think we're further along the path towards 1984 than I do. So realizing that a lot of the time it's actually, you know, for reasons that I could agree with um, in some ways, just not to the extent that they do. Um, so that was a sort of a softening of my view on on the people who who really vehemently disagree with some scientific claims. And then as we th- as we think of everything that has changed within the world of science and rejection of science after your PhD, <laughs> hit the, the proverbial publishing press. Um, I guess this is a more personal question, but what was it like to experience the COVID-19 pandemic as someone so who'd spent such a significant period of the, the previous years? Thinking about the scope of science, the rejection of science, obviously a specific example being the question of vaccinations. Uh, I guess observing that within New Zealand over the last five years, often we come on here and we on PhD Unpacked and we say, well, what has changed in the last few years? There's such an obvious answer uh, post-2020. Yeah, you've spoken about you know growing more empathetic. Do you think things have, you mentioned before that things maybe have changed and that there is perhaps a growing community of people who uh, display rejection of science, perhaps within vaccinations. I guess just generally the last two years, how has that impacted the way that you have thought about this kind of subject as a whole? Yeah, it's it's such a, I mean, there's nothing else that's happened like the pandemic. So it sort of scrambled everything in a sense. But it did illustrate a few things. Like one, I mean, uh, people certainly became, like they paid a lot more attention to scientists, especially at the beginning because there was so much uncertainty and, and real fear, right? People just didn't know what was going to happen. And scientists were the people who were recognised as having at least some insight. Um, so you saw in initially, you know, a, a lot of attention paid to scientists, but also a lot of other people coming out of the woodwork saying, well, actually, I, I've got this information. And it became really hard for people to navigate what's true and not. And if if you weren't very trusting of scientists, there was a whole lot of other people who were willing to tell you other information, which which was factually incorrect, you know. Um, so that presented a real challenge around around this whole idea of like what people believe in in, in science. Um, but then there was also a real public health issue there, which wasn't just about oh we need to get people to to trust scientists. It was that we needed to get people to be vaccinated, not only for their own protection, but ultimately for you know protection of others in the community to prevent the health system from getting overwhelmed. So suddenly in, you have this sort of moral imperative from the view of the, of, of the um, government to, to actually get people to adopt these behaviours based on the evidence. So that was you know a real challenge. In my research after my PhD when I was in England, some of that looked at, you know, how does different kinds of information influence people's um, vaccination choices? The answer to spoiler alert is not much. Um, by the time I was doing my research, most people had actually formed very stable and strong beliefs and mostly pro-vaccine beliefs that it didn't really matter what you told them. They'd already made the decision, I'm going to get vaccinated or not. It's quite hard to move anyone's um, intentions on that. But a lot of the work I had done fed into that about trying to understand well, it's not that someone just doesn't realise that vaccines work and you just need to tell them that information. There's all sorts of other stuff. Again, the, the idea that the government is forcing me to do something, the role of the state in making decisions on behalf of individuals, that became a real big factor. And particularly in England, there are a lot of people who saw it as sort of a you know a rights issue. And definitely in New Zealand, it played out that way with um, when there were vaccine mandates. So there, there were all these sort of political decisions that were feeding in to people's beliefs about 
um, what, what we might call a scientific issue, vaccination, but it's really a social issue at that point. It's a, it's a societal thing that we're, we're really grappling with. Yep, science is involved, you know, do vaccines work, do they not work? But there's also these, all these other questions about how society functions as a, as a group of people. So it gets pretty complicated pretty quickly. A big thank you to John for coming on to PhD Unpacked and having a chat with us about his research. If you're looking to learn more, you can have a read of John's PhD, which can be found in the bio for this episode. On the next episode of PhD Unpacked, we talk to Dr. Hana Tuisano about her PhD, Maopopo, a socio-cultural and collective understanding to improve well-being amongst Pacific people in Aotearoa, New Zealand. There's um, evidence of um, Pacific people not feeling welcome when they walk into you know, providers, health providers, even in hospitals. Um, so, you know, th those are the sort of things that can de-escalate common stresses for um, Māori and Pacific people. To keep up with the various podcasts and projects that Coalesce are producing, head to at CoalesceNZ on Instagram. And for more from us, it's at PhD Unpacked on Instagram. Before I go, big love to Wellington Access Radio for the interview spot. Thank you for listening. Ma te wa.